0: listener production this is the five of my life with me nigel marsh the series where i talk to notable people about five of their defining things the way it works is my guests always choose a favorite film book song place and possession they tell me their choices in advance so i can research them but they don't tell me why they've chosen them that's the subject of our conversation the reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Ronnie's writing on living a regret free life is truly transformative. Her work has had a profound impact on me after I read her book, The Top. Five Regrets of the Dying. I was so honoured to have this heartfelt conversation, given her famous aversion to doing personal interviews. So Bronnie, welcome to Five of My Life.
1: Thank you, Nigel. It's a delight to be here.
0: Now, I know you are uh, a very private person. So the question I wanted to start with is, how was it deciding on five areas of your life to talk about? Was that difficult or were you just thrilled that I wasn't going to ask you about the five regrets all the time? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: certainly the latter Um, I'm looking forward to a conversation that isn't about the five regrets but I am a really private person in my everyday life and day-to-day life but I've written very two very personal memoirs the top five regrets of the dying and then my third book Bloom is a second memoir which I certainly never saw coming and so I'm sort of used to sharing aspects of myself but I was exposed to fame at a really young age when I was a kid through my father's music career and I think because of that I realised fame is not real and and I guarded my privacy the whole way through my growth, the growth of my career. So I've been able to manage it where my neighbours don't even know what my job is and uh, we've lived next door for six years and we help each other out and everything else and... You know all those sort of things. I, I manage my privacy, but at the same time, I'm happy to share these five because they they have beautiful stories that go with them, so hopefully that will will be nice for the listeners.
0: Well, we are honoured to have you on, and it as is traditional uh, on Five my life. We start with your film, and your choice is the best thing to come out of Sweden since Abba. You've chosen the two thousand and four Oscar nominated as it is in heaven. Oh, so glad you chose that because it gave me an excuse to re-watch it. Uh, but why did you choose it?
1: I loved the range of characters within the village and they were portrayed incredibly well, especially I loved the music, just the power of music in in connection and bringing people together. I also loved that the ending was so bittersweet because there was such joy and it was it was heart-opening and the characters were just delightful there were even the most broken of them you could feel sorry for and were, you were just sort of cheering everyone on and uh, and it was music that bonded them and watching how music healed them and ostracized them from other people in the village but brought them together as a choir was i just loved it i just absolutely loved their tra- all the the transformation of all the characters and as a lover of music, it, it really opened my
0: heart. There's so many themes in it that I want to uh, ask you about. But one of them is in Gabriella's song, which is the sort of like the, the hit song from the film, that the lady who's being abused by her husband finally decides to, you know, leave him and start a life afresh. And in the song says, it's now that, that life is mine, I've got this short time on earth. And so she's deciding not to waste another second of it. And in, in my work, and I'm sure in yours, you see people who sort of sleepwalk through life. They they slide, they don't decide. And, and, you know, normally it takes what I call one of the big four, a death, disease, divorce or redundancy, to make them actually think about things properly and start living, you know, true to themselves. Uh, how do we help people come to that realisation without something catastrophic happening to them?
1: Mm, I would say 70% of people live that way in my in my observations, but I I think we do it by example because if our example doesn't help them, then they've got to get the wake-up call of the other four things. And you're right, they've, they've got to be catastrophic. But I do believe that through example and through believing in people and just helping them see what is possible, because sometimes it's it's not that people are um intentionally holding themselves back they just don't know that they can be more than they are and so if they see your example and they also know where you've come from so that you're not separate from them and and they think oh well okay well that's all well and good for you you live in the eastern suburbs like you or you know i've i've got a book and i'm famous whatever and so then they don't relate but if they actually know your humanity and know where you've come from then your example can actually carry them forward but other than that i really believe it's a matter of helping people see what is possible and uh, for me it was a, a tony robbins event once i went to a tony robbins event in 1998 i think it was and that was the first time i actually dared to believe i could live a life bigger than what i was living. And so I think it is possible without catastrophe, but it has to be done gently because no one likes someone preaching at them and, you know, people have to be ready to hear what you have to share.
0: So so on on the subject of preaching, uh, there's a very strong religious theme within that film as it is in heaven. It's just such a great film. Um, And there's one wonderful... uh, Scene when the pastor's wife is screaming at him, uh, the church invented sin, handing out guilt with one hand, then offering redemption with the other. Well, I thought amazing uh, sort of summation of, of uh, some religious traditions. Uh, um, would you mind talking about your religious journey? I'm
1: actually a divorced Catholic. I was raised as a Catholic, but I have since officially divorced because I spend a lot of time in Germany and it's a very Catholic country. And if you're Catholic and you live in Germany, and I don't know if I will one day, but if you do, the Catholic church gets 10% of your gross wage and they can sometimes take a couple of years to catch up on you and you have to back pay it. And so I just decided I'm not even a practicing Catholic. i decided not to be a Catholic when I was 18 and there is no way I'm paying the Catholic Church. So (laughs) I, you know, I, I officially divorced. I actually got it all in documented writing, but I grew up with an uncle who was a Catholic priest. He was on my father's side. So I had a very, very strong religious upbringing. I didn't, I didn't. My dad couldn't have given a damn about it. So that was a nice influence sort of thing, even though his brother would turn up and say mass, in our lounge room before we went to school, and, and we'd just be standing there as teenagers, thinking, "How long's Uncle Jim staying? I hope he leaves soon." <laughs> and uh, and then when I was in year eleven, I think it was the head nun at my school asked me if I would consider joining the order. And as far as I know, I'm the only one she actually asked. So I think she saw a spiritual searching in me, or or something, but. You know, at the time I was I was a teenager and hanging out a little bit in panel vans and stuff <laughs> like that with boys and I was not joining the order. But as it's turned out, there have been times I considered joining, becoming a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist nun. There were times along my path since then that I did consider it quite heavily. Uh, but I've realised that I can actually serve life and uh, our human family better just by being myself and uh, and freedom's one of my highest values. So I count on my own self-discipline and and live how I want to live and and stay connected to my soul that way instead.
0: Well that's the perfect link to your second choice on Five in My Life. You've chosen a book by Eileen Caddy, one of the co-founders of the Find Horn community in Scotland. Uh, it's Footprints on the Path. Um and, and I have to say I, I found that quite a challenging read i mean i'm glad you chose it because i wouldn't have read it in a million years if you if you hadn't um and i read it cover to cover but i found it quite challenging and and i i'd love you to tell us about footprints on the path and why you chose it
1: it's my bible like if I um and i don't refer to it that often maybe a couple of times a year these days but if there was a you know that if there was a fire what book would you grab that's the only one i'd grab i could live without everything else the reason I resonate with it so strongly is because a lot of the choices I've made, particularly when I was in my 20s and 30s, have been leaps of faith and I had everyone else dumping their fear on me saying, you know, there's a recession on, you've got a good job. I was in, I was in banking and I left banking to go and wash dishes on a tropical island and people were like, you're, you're crazy, you've got a good career and, you know, you're throwing it all away and I just wanted to be bare feet. In North Queensland, I didn't want to be wearing high heels and stockings and makeup and nonsense like that. So, when I discovered footprints on the path, it was like at last someone understood me that I just have to take this leap of faith. I don't know where I'm going to land. All I know is I'm being called away from where I am and what I'm doing now. And I want to find more joy. And so I have the courage to step out there, not knowing where I'm going. In those earlier years, there was just so much fear dumped on me by everybody else because I triggered it in them. And no one could really understand why I would just do that, or I would just quit another job and hit the road with a full tank of fuel and $50 and not know where I was going to end up and, you know, those sort of leaps. And they weren't all pretty and enjoyable, but they certainly helped me get to know myself and my own potential to create the life I wanted. So Footprints on the Path, it's a spiritual book. It's not a religious book, which I love. It's about just trusting that calling and knowing that life will look after you. If you have the courage to honor your joy, be a good person and just go where it makes the most sense to you, even if it doesn't make the most sense to anyone else, even if you're scared, even if you've got no idea how it's going to turn out. And so that's why it became my Bible because there were plenty of times along the way where I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done and how am I going to land in after this mess I've, I've put myself in? And then I'd get the book and I'd read it and I'd just feel completely calm again I think, no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And it always was.
0: There's a couple of quotes from it that I'd, I'd love to um uh, ask you about. I mean, the first one, it just struck me uh, like, like a sort of a, a wet fish in the face. It's many of you are still content to accept second best, either because you feel unworthy to receive the best or you are too lazy to raise your consciousness. Mm. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, just, you I mean, you know, word, truth. Uh, but this, the second one that I'd like to ask you about is uh, its just a simple thing at the start of one of the chapters, which is start this day to create a better world around you the balance between self-care and caring for the world and and, and what, what's your view of that as we can all do lots of work on ourselves which is a usually a very very positive thing uh, and and sometimes we can come too insular and not care about the you know that the world and other times we can care too much about the world and not look after ourselves and, and how you strike the balance.
1: You do it without guilt you, you actually realize that the heart naturally wants to serve and if you're not coming from that place and you're just serving yourself and you have no desire whatsoever to serve humanity in some way then you're possibly coming very much from the mind and living very much from the mind and you're disconnected from your heart and and uh, what it wants to do but then there's the other end of it where you can serve so much and You forget your own joy and you become a martyr or you feel like you don't deserve happiness if you're not serving. And there is a balance. And I think it comes down to realising that you are as equally worthy as everyone else you want to serve. And that your joy is equally as important as everyone else you're serving, whether that service is your family, like your children, your partner, your your elderly parents or whatever, or whether it's a very defined service role where you have an audience or you're looking after dying people or you're a carer or a policeman, whatever. It's realising that you are as equally as important as everyone else and so finding that balance is realizing that, okay, I'm I'm actually allowed to be happy and do things I like that don't actually have an agenda to serve humanity. They may not even have an agenda to serve yourself other than with enjoyment, just to have, have some fun, because that's the more you give yourself permission to enjoy your life, the better you show up for life anyway, and and for serving others.
0: That that's such a, a wonderful quote, the heart naturally wants to serve. I, I love it. If you get out your own way then you, and, and act true to your heart and your intention, you will probably end up helping other people anyway without even sitting down to decide to.
1: Yes, exactly. And sometimes it's a lot more subtle than we think. So I I had a, an elderly lady who used to, this is when I was living in Perth, and she grew a garden. And that garden just brought me so much joy, and we became friends through that. But she was doing that for herself, but she was serving me every day because I was working in an office with no, like under fluorescent lights, no windows, and and seeing her garden every day, morning and afternoon from the train was such a gift to me. So it's not always that massive and altruistic where you think, right, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to save every person on the planet. You can't save everyone, you've got to save yourself first, but At the same time, sometimes you're serving in a way that is just doing something that brings you joy and you don't even realise the ripples you're creating for other people, but you've had the courage to get on with it and honour your own joy.
0: For your third choice, your song that we um, add to the Five My Life Spotify playlist, we're going back to the 2000s, we're going to the year after As It In Heaven was released, 2005, to the hauntingly beautiful uh song by Mary Gaucher, mercy now gosh I, I am so pleased to be adding that to the playlist I, I, I'd never come across I mean to my shame I'd never come across Mary Gaucher before but please tell us about the song and why you chose it bronnie I
1: think for for me i've I've had a lot of lessons in forgiveness and my dad he's he's passed away now but I was sort of the most like him in the sense that I was the sensitive, creative one, and so I triggered a lot of stuff in him, and he was very cruel, verbally cruel and verbally abusive to me a lot of my life. We did some major healing and we got through it, and by the time he died, he was he was able to love me as best as he could love anyone, and by that point, I, I spent most of my life grieving his love but by the time he could love me, I didn't actually need his love and so I was just happy for him that he would reached a place to, to actually be able to love and, and, you know, say that he was proud of me or whatever because by then I was sort of thinking, well, at least he's, I was proud of him. I, I wasn't sort of hanging by that anymore because he was just human, a very broken human, a very sensitive, lovely, beautiful human but, but in his brokenness it wasn't always delivered with, with the positive traits that he did have in him. So forgiveness was a really big part of my my journey and the way I healed my relationship with my dad was through compassion but I also had to develop compassion for myself and uh, just because of the wounds I was carrying in, in order to heal and so I found that forgiveness and compassion, have played very major roles in my joy, in me getting to a place where I could find my joy and uh, without guilt and where I could be peaceful. And I find that mercy is a blend of that, that mercy is like the middle ground with a little bit of forgiveness and a little bit of compassion. And so it, it sort of says to people, okay, I, I forgive you and I see that you're broken and you've made some mistakes I'm just going to give you mercy now, which is that forgiveness and compassion. So the first time I heard that song, the first verse is my father could do with a little mercy now. And, of course, that just struck a chord. And then it went on to my brother, and I've got a great brother, but at the time he was a chronic workaholic. I just felt that the second verse really fit him as who he was at the time that I heard that. He's... He's a bit of a different guy now, and uh, and much more peaceful in himself. And then it, you know, it goes on and says how your country and your church and uh, can do with a little mercy. And then it says we all could do with a little mercy now. And so by the time I got to that, the first time I heard it, I was just bawling my eyes out because, of course, I deserve mercy. I've messed up plenty of times. I'm not perfect in any of my relationships either. And we all have brokenness to heal and. So, of course, I deserved mercy from myself and mercy from life as well. So I just find it to be a song that just strips away all the nonsense and all the judgment and just helps you see that humanity is a bit of a mess, but we're also broken and we also deserve a break and and that by developing mercy and uh, practising mercy, you actually approach life with a lot less judgment and a much more open, kinder heart.
0: It's a beautiful, wonderful, as I said, haunting uh, song. And she's an interesting lady. I, I mean, I spent a lot of time sort of researching her, having ha- having been pointed towards her song by you. Uh, and she doesn't shy away from the sort of the darker side of, of life in her writing and in her art. Uh, and her own personal story, you know, orphan, addict, spent her 18th birthday in jail, uh, and she got sober at twenty-seven, and 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 that t- turned her life around. Would you mind talking a little bit about your own drinking journey and some of your your dark moments where where you've you've been you know extraordinarily low?
1: It wasn't drinking. My dad was an alcoholic, but I've never really been much of a drinker. But yeah, I've experimented with with a lot of drugs along the way. I had had a couple of really or one particular very scary uh, ecstasy trip when I was in London and, uh, and my body overheated and I spent the night sitting on a windowsill against a frozen window while some, stra- some stranger, a woman, just kept coming in from the dance club and filling up my water and keeping me topped up. And, but I, there were a couple of years there where I pretty much tried. I didn't ever stick a needle in my arm. Thank goodness I, I had enough common sense about that. But yeah, within a, a, a year or two, I think I would tried speed, cocaine, opium, um, acid, mushrooms. That was when I was, and I was holding up, holding a very responsible bank job at the time. I was about twenty-three or twenty-four or so. I'd just left my first marriage, and so I'd never, um, I'd never really been free as an adult. So I just went a bit crazy. My main poison was pot, was smoking pot. My, my first husband that I just mentioned, he was a dope grower and a social worker. And uh, and so he'd help kids sort their lives out and then just, uh, you know, grow his plants and sell them. And so I didn't actually smoke much pot in those days. I was pretty straight and it was after I left him. And so pot sort of just, just used to just get given to me and, like, ice cream container sizes. And I'd I'd really battle with it when, this is when I was long gone from that relationship. And there was always this battle between wanting it and not wanting it. And then eventually I found my way to my meditation path and I just straightened out completely. Didn't smoke pot at all for 15 years or so. But interestingly enough, now I don't smoke, I don't get stoned but I take medicinal cannabis because I live in chronic pain now. I have rheumatoid arthritis. And so recently in the last six months, medicinal cannabis has come into my life. And so it's the same plant, but I take it about a quarter of what the doctor prescribed because I really like being straight. (laughs)
0: We're going to fly off to Germany. You've mentioned Germany before, but we're going to the capital city, uh, the largest city, Berlin, which was your uh, fourth choice on five of My Life. Uh, Bronnie Ware, tell us why you have chosen that.
1: Oh, I just love Berlin, <laughs> and I, I love who I am in Berlin. I've only spent three months there, but it is my dream to buy a unit there one day, hence why I got so organised and divorced the Catholic Church, because it is something that I... I imagine when my daughter's up and grown, I would like to spend some longer time there. I found it was a little bit like New York in the sense that anything goes, but I love the European feel of that anything goes. And I loved that I didn't need a car and that the infrastructure was so set up that I could just ride a bike. I still own a bike over there. I've I've lent it to someone who's living there now, but it was in a friend's basement for a year or so and then... Then it came out and, uh, yeah, I didn't sell the bike because I always intended to go back. And I think Berlin is, is so, so different to the rest of Germany. I, I've had really great success in Germany. So of Five Regrets, I've sold over a million copies and half a million of those are in Germany. And then the other 31 languages make up the other 50%. And the film from Five Regrets, there's a movie being made, the producers are from Germany as well. So I have a connection with with that country, and my grandma was was from Bavaria in Germany, even though it wasn't a very heavy influence at all in our upbringing.
0: I'm going to change tack a little bit because because you mentioned your daughter. Would you mind talking a little bit to to that? She's I'm not sure. She's eleven, is she? And and no, she's
1: nine. So I I became a first time mum at forty five. She was conceived natu- naturally and quickly. I was in a relationship. It wasn't long-term at the time, but we conceived intentionally. I was 44, and I had her, oh, well, I say 45, two weeks outside of turning 45. And uh, she's incredible. I mean, i would lived such a, such a nomadic, restless life, and part of that was running away and keeping people at a distance, but part of it was a genuine love of adventure and challenging myself. Whereas having Eleanor, it's just grounded me so much because I want to give her the best life I can. It didn't work out with her dad and I, and um, so I'm I'm a single mum raising her. And within uh, the sa- the same time that Eleanor was born, within twenty four hours of that. My my book, Five Regrets, had been rejected by 25 publishers. Within 24 hours of Eleanor being born, I was offered an international publishing contract with Hay House while I was in hospital, and that went on to become the fastest foreign rights seller in Hay House history. At the same time, I also developed rheumatoid arthritis. So I've never known motherhood or disease or book success without any of the other things. So Eleanor sort of has had to grow up fast, um, having a, a mum who sometimes is fine but sometimes needs help to get dressed. But she's a delight and she's an extrovert. I'm a deep introvert. And so that has really forced me out of my shell because I, I can become very comfortably reclusive and, and I love that. But I'm not sure that it's necessarily that great for my own mental health, even though a part of me just feels very comfortable with it. But having an extroverted only child means that I have to really get out get out and about a lot and she's just such a ray of light. Everyone who meets her just said she's she lights up the room, she's bright and yeah, I have this gorgeous child who thrives on making gifts for people. That's one of her most favorite things. Like when we we're in Berlin, for example, she got the nanny to help her make Christmas decorations and then insisted her and I went out on the trains and handed them out to strangers. And I think there are about 50 of them, just paper drawings with, with uh, some thread, coloured thread through them, all in Christmas symbols. And, you know, we, we had to go and just give them to strangers. And she was five then. We had to go and give them to strangers on the train. That's just, that's just who my kid is. She's, she's a gorgeous human being. And, and I really think that, that she has the sweetest heart of anyone I've ever met. She is just a naturally sweet kid, yeah.
0: She has a heart that naturally wants to serve. Your last and fifth choice on Five of My Life is the Possession, and you have chosen your guitar. Could you describe it to us and tell us why, Bronnie?
1: Okay, so it's a Martin C16, which is a small-bodied Martin guitar. Dad was the first lead guitarist in Australia, and he was also a country music historian. He used to have a radio show called Pat Ware's Old Time Country Corner. I wrote my first song when I was 35. I was trying to get a a book of nature photos and quotes published and after three years of rejection letters with that, I picked up the guitar and wrote my first song. And so I sort of ventured down the singer-songwriter path then and it was very confrontational for me. I wasn't a drinker. I couldn't knock back a quick vodka. I was very introverted and reclusive But it healed me a lot having to go on to a stage. I did all the singer-songwriter nights around Sydney and Melbourne. And then I started getting into some folk festivals, which was an audience more attuned to my gentle songs. And I think initially I wanted to be a good guitarist to prove my dad wrong or something because he wasn't very encouraging at all to start with. But music actually became a huge part of my joy and I bought that guitar when someone said to me, like I'd said, I'll get a better guitar when I'm a better player. And this guy, I can't remember even who it was, but someone at a singer-songwriter night said, you'll become a better guitarist when you buy a better guitar. You rise rise up to that. And that's what happened. And I became a really good, I just loved finger-picking and playing and, and music actually became very healing. And when I left Palliative Care... I created a songwriting program in a women's jail and I taught songwriting there. So that was, you know, a, a lovely extension of, of my my life experiences that I didn't foresee. But then when Eleanor was born, I got rheumatoid arthritis and now my fingers don't bend and I can't play my guitar and so i've sort of lived with the grief of that for 9 years now and i had this contraption called cordelia made by this guy in ireland who couldn't work out for him he couldn't hold chords he just couldn't get his his coordination together so he made this machine that you stick on the end of your guitar and you and it holds down chords and that you're limited to the five chords that he Put on it but you hold this lever and it pushes the hammers into the strings on the neck in the right position but even like holding that down can be really painful on my wrist so I can generally only play about one or two songs at a time anyway because of pain but it brought music back into my life and I feel like my journey with the guitar is not finished yet maybe it's just a denial and an inability to accept that I can never play again. I, but I I do go through grief where I think, okay, this could be it. But any times I've packed away the guitar and thought there's no point leaving it out at some point it calls back and comes out again. And so it's just my favorite possession because it, there's so much of me involved in it, in how it healed me, but now how it challenges me that it, I can't play it, but it beckons me. And yeah, it would be the, the the thing I'd grab with with that book if I could only grab one possession.
0: I've been listening to lots of your music in preparation for this conversation. And you wrote somewhere that, that your favorite song is Let It Come Through. And one of the lines from one of the lyrics from from that song is just deal with the first step. The rest will be revealed. Uh, and I love that note, but how I express it to the long-suffering Mrs Marsh is it's the car headlights philosophy. It is, you, you know, you, you haven't got to go up the whole bloody staircase, just take the first step and then maybe take the next step and guess what? You end up at the top of the staircase, but you didn't have the whole plan sorted at the start. Uh, and I, I just love that sentiment. In A, it's a brilliant song, but B, I think it's a lovely sentiment.
1: Thank you, Nigel. Well, that's how I live my life. I, I think that if, if we dare to not know every step of the way, we leave some space for life to help us. And instead of getting a goal, taking a hundred steps, it may only take 53 or something because life just says, oh yeah, okay, you can do it that way. But here, I'll introduce you to the right person and that'll give you a shortcut. And that way it leaves a lot of room for beautiful, positive surprise and, and rewards that you don't see coming.
0: One of my core beliefs is that today only has value because tomorrow is uncertain. If I could have laid out to you as an 18 year old, everything that was going to happen to you, it would suck all the joy out of it. It's the fact that you don't know. If I could tell you now what's going to happen in the next 30 years in your life, I would just be ruining it for you. I I, I don't want to know. I want to make, you know, make it up as I go. And on which point I, I have to quote you to you because I've I, I read <laughs> your books in preparation of this. And, and okay. there was one, that uh, before we get to the sixth question, there's one that I just wanted to read to you because power to your elbow, Bronnie Ware, what an angel you are, what a gift to the world you are. You wrote in one of your books, life doesn't owe you anything, neither does anyone else. Only you owe yourself. So the best way to make the most of life is to appreciate the gift of it and choose not to be a victim. Beautiful. Thank you. You are a legend. <laughs> Thank you. At which point? Uh, I'd stop your crying and tell me, uh, who <laughs> is your uh, uh, guest that you would like to hear next on Five of My Life, Bronnie?
1: Shane Howard, the legendary singer, Australian singer-songwriter. Uh, a lot of mainstream people would know him as, as the main singer for Goanna, who um, had big hits in the 80s. But Shane is so much more than that, and he has spent his life bridging the gap between Aboriginal Australia and and white Australia. He's also campaigned for environmental concerns and got the horse racing off the local beaches and things like that. But he's just a gorgeous-hearted person and I I guess I respect him because he was being an activist in his own way at a time I would never have had, no-one was, And, and it would have taken a lot of courage I find him to be a very gentle person, um, very gentle and wise, and yet the legacy that he will leave behind one day is is massive and the work that he continues to do is, is massive. So I've met Shane a few times and, and I absolutely love him, but I don't know him super well and I would be really curious what he would choose for the five because you ask great questions, Nigel, and you do your research and... Yeah, I think I'd just love to know what this legendary man would choose. And and because he's got so much wisdom to share, and I, I have great respect for him.
0: What a wonderful nomination. I, I, I have taken so much from this conversation. The thing, I, I mean, mercy is the middle ground between forgiveness and compassion. We need to sometimes leave some space for life to help us. Uh, it's been an absolute joy researching you and chatting to you. I, I hope all things in your life continue to bring you blessings, Bronnie. Lots of love from Five of My Life. And thank you very much for coming on, honouring the format and sharing some of your life.
1: It's, it's been an absolute pleasure, Nigel. Thank you so much.
0: The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicolish. Listener.